The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg, and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com/forward/slash/subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by China Global South's managing editor Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, Kobus. It has been a few days now since Xi Jinping wrapped up his first trip overseas in 971 days. This was, in many ways, a big milestone for the Chinese president. He hadn't been overseas. Since the beginning of the pandemic, so expectations were running super high. He went to Kazakhstan first last week for just your run-of-the-mill state visit, and then crossed the border into Uzbekistan the following day for a two-day summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. He had a ton of bilateral meetings. It was a very high-profile event. It caught the attention of the international media. Most of the focus was on the meeting between Russian President Vladimir Putin. And Chinese President Xi Jinping, but he had a lot of other bilaterals. What was your big takeaway looking back on this trip that got so much attention and expectations were running so high? Well, you know, kind of there was so much made of the the meeting between uh, Xi and Vladimir Putin, and that ended up being. You know, like it's notable that they met, and of course the the optics were very interesting. Where、uh, where Putin seemed a little bit more effusive than she,、um, and she seemed to you know subtly try to kind of put a little bit of daylight between between China and Russia, but nothing was particularly big. For all of the kind of build up and all of the significance of of the kind of first trip overseas, the the actual kind of the actual optics delivered ended up being relatively muted.、Um, what, what did you think? I think the key priority for both the Chinese Foreign Ministry and for the President's office for this visit was not to mess anything up. This needed to go well. It needed to be smooth. There needed to not be any fireworks of any kind. And I think that's exactly what they wanted to do for his first trip overseas. And it makes sense in some respects that this was the place he went to in an environment again where it's not as contentious as if he went to the G20 summit in November, which is going to be far more acrimonious given the presence of the Americans, the Europeans, the Japanese. They're all going to be there. So that would have been a much more difficult debut, rather than what he did in Central Asia. I was surprised by one key thing, and I wrote about this today for our subscribers. Was the fact that you look at the list of people that he met with, and it's pretty much almost every leader he had a short, quick bilateral with, took a picture with, shook hands with, and acknowledged. And then when you see the group photo that he took, he didn't even look at Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And this was a huge surprise. The Indian media, for the past two or three weeks, has been speculating wildly, and we thought as well that the ground was being laid for a meeting between Modi and Xi in Samarkand. That did not happen. In fact, not only did it not happen, they didn't look at each other, they didn't shake hands, and man, it was chilly and icy. And it was really the one big exception for all of the other meetings that was there. Now let's kind of back up a little bit over the past. Three, four weeks. A lot of hints were kind of being led. Some breadcrumbs were being kind of put out by both sides that there might be 
a meeting between the two. There was this unannounced sudden decision to withdraw from parts of the line of actual control. Both the Chinese and the Indian sides withdrew from a two to four kilometer zone in the Himalayas. That is something that we didn't expect. A lot of people thought that was going to be the precursor to the meeting, a goodwill gesture, if you will, laying the groundwork for this meeting. Okay, apparently not. Uh, there was also the fact that both Indian and Chinese troops participated in Russian war games a couple of weeks ago. That too was something that was unusual. Also, the Indians have been very enthusiastic in the BRICS format and the BRICS club. So again, another form for the, for the Chinese and the Indians to cooperate with one another. And so there's all of these different indications that this frosty, icy relationship, very tense relationship, had shown just enough for the two leaders to actually do something, or maybe even in private. But no, they couldn't even shake hands. And Kobus, as a Japan scholar, you recognize this behavior because that is exactly the kind of optics that both Chinese and Japanese leaders like to do when they meet, sending signals back home to their domestic political constituencies that they're not making any concessions with their rivals. Yes, it certainly seemed to indicate that that kind of domestic anti-China, you know, kind of feelings are maybe higher than 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 we anticipated. I, I was wondering how how from your perspective it plays out across Asia, because you know, obviously everyone, you know, kind of like I think from the from the outside world, it's you know the the the, the Putin Xi meeting was so was. Got, drew so much more attention, but within Asia, I think the the kind of frostiness between between Modi and Xi seemed to have larger implications. That's right. So the focus here in the Asia Pacific region, in a number of newspapers, there were columns again over the past few weeks focusing on the Xi Modi visit, not the Putin Xi visit that everybody in Europe and the U.S. was was keeping their eye on. The concern is that if tensions with India deteriorate further as they appear to be going. And again, just look at the body language between these two leaders. And, and just to be fair, Kobus, it's not entirely sure that the anti-China sentiment in India is the factor here. It could be the anti-Indian sentiment on the Chinese side that's just as culpable. Not entirely sure who or both were responsible for this behavior that we saw in Samarkand. So it could be both sides. It could be one. It wasn't obvious what that is. But when you take a look at the bigger picture and you pull out and you see the China-Japan relationship now in a very contentious phase, especially with Taiwan now sitting as a, a huge factor and the fact that U.S. President Joe Biden on 60 Minutes this week came out for the first time and said that U.S. troops would be involved in a conflict. The White House then said, well, we're not changing our policy. It's still strategic ambiguity. But Let's remember that Joe Biden is not making gaffes here, okay? This is a guy that was elected to the Senate in 1972. Then he was in the Senate at the time of the Taiwan Relations Act and the three communiques. He then, for the entirety of the Cold War from 1979 going forward, was one of the most senior members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. There are few people in Washington who know the Taiwan situation better than Joe Biden did. And so I'm hearing all of this on Twitter about these gaffes and these misstatements. Joe Biden's not making misstatements here. This is a strategy that's at play. And the fact is that together with the Modi tensions, it just adds to a lot of anxiety. And that is something of concern for everybody, because let's be honest here, 60% of 
world trade passes through Asia Pacific. It's the center of wealth and it's the center of population. This is the largest region in the world for all of that. And so the fact that if this region is going to militarize and become less stable, it will have ramifications everywhere. And so that's the concern that China, India, China, Sri Lanka, China, Taiwan, China, and Japan, and China, U.S., it's getting into a very, very contentious phase. So, so I think that's a, a concern. I don't get the sense, though, Kobe, especially in places like Africa and elsewhere, that they're following the tensions here in Asia Pacific as closely as we are, obviously. In South Africa at the moment, like the, the, the attention is completely on, on domestic issues and particularly in, in relation to, um, to Cyril Ramaphosa, the, the president of South Africa, he's currently visiting the U.S., um, so there was a lot of focus on that. And then this crazy electricity kind of breakdowns in South Africa at the moment, like really even more than usual. And um, and the level of kind of popular anger around that stuff is white. All of like, even the little bit of attention that they would have paid to to kind of India-China relations has wiped that off the, off the map completely. Yeah, the power outages are something next level. I mean, I think they there was a uh, there's a category of the powder outages that you're facing now in South Africa, and they've, it's unprecedented. So it really kind of speaks to to the dangers of what's of what's happening in terms of power. And power obviously is an issue in Europe and in, and even in the United States. People are looking in the winter now for the largest electricity bills that they're that they've had in in decades. So I think power is something that a lot of people can relate to around the world. One of the other big takeaways from the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit was the fact that this represents yet another institution that the Chinese are building as an alternative to the established multilateral order, that is, outside of the UN system, the World Bank, the IMF. And there's these organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, like the New Development Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Global Development Initiative, the New Global Security Initiative, the BRICS grouping, and, of course, the granddaddy of them all, the Belt and Road Initiative. And what's interesting is there's some symbolism about Xi going back to Kazakhstan nine years, almost to the month, when he went to announce the Belt and Road Initiative. And so there is a lot of symbolic importance for Xi in Kazakhstan. And so what we thought it would be good is between now and, say, the end of October, we're going to try and do a few shows with some leading scholars and experts on the Belt and Road to try and get a pulse check of where we are today. And because, again, it's so difficult for people on the outside. Actually, let me correct that. It's so difficult for anybody, even in China, to understand the Belt and Road simply because it's more a concept than an actual thing. Let's remember, there is no Department of the Belt and Road that has an office on Chang'an Avenue. They don't issue quarterly reports. This is this abstract thing that just evolves over time. So we have to kind of read through the prism and the, the, the hall of mirrors to figure out what it is. So that's why it was interesting for us when the Asia Society Policy Institute, which is part of the Asia Society in New York, they launched this new digital tool called Navigating the Belt and Road Initiative, a digital toolkit. It was produced and generated by Daniel Russell, who is the Vice President for International Security and Diplomacy at the Asia Society Policy Institute. We've had Danny on the show before to talk about the BRI. Also, Blake Berger, who's Associate Director at ASPI. And unfortunately, Danny wasn't available to join us for the conversation, but we had a fantastic discussion with Blake to tell us more about the new digital toolkit and what they were hoping to accomplish with it. Let's take a listen to our interview with Blake Berger in New York. 
Blake Berger, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Eric. Well, congratulations on the new digital toolkit. We're looking forward to hearing more about that. But before we dive into what this toolkit that you guys have done actually is, who it's for, and how you use it, I think it'd be a helpful starting point for us to look at where you think the Belt and Road is today. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary. It's nine years in October since Xi Jinping was in Kazakhstan and Indonesia when the first mentions of the Belt and Road were made. Since then, a lot has happened. This thing has evolved. We've always said that the Belt and Road is like a Rorschach test. People can see almost anything they want in it. Where are we today, according to the Asia Society Policy Institute, you and your colleagues, how do you see the Belt and Road in 2022? I guess the way I would frame it is that the Belt and Road is constantly changing and constantly evolving. And so, of course, you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen a little bit of a slowdown in terms of financing for major infrastructure, physical infrastructure projects, your high-speed railways, your ports. But what we are seeing is somewhat of a gradual shift towards more of a focus on the digital Silk Road and shifting away from the labor-intensive, cost-intensive physical infrastructure projects. So while I don't envision the Belt and Road stopping anytime soon, contrary to the fact I see it, you know, continuing to kind of evolve and move towards more sustainable infrastructure projects that don't require, you know, the amount of Chinese labor influx into the country, but still have the bang for buck in terms of bolstering Chinese influence within host countries. And in terms of the kind of support systems that are in place, you know, Chinese contractors are very good at what they do. And you've seen over the last 10 years, the Belt and Road really elevate its standards. Albeit slowly, you know, projects are becoming more sustainable. And, you know, the kind of due diligence is increasingly being done. I'll buy too late for some projects, but I think we're going to see a much more nimble, better BRI going forward. On, on that point, um, can, like, how have you seen, like, who, who are the main drivers in, in, in upgrading standards, um, and also articulating standards? We've, we've seen, we've seen, you know, kind of some green standards coming from the Ministry of Commerce, for example, for international pro- projects. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how standard setting along the Belt and Road evolved. Sure. I guess it would be, I mean, it's really, I would say, all parties involved, everyone from, you know, the Chinese ministries and, of course, Xi Jinping to the NDRC, MOFCOM, and all the way down to the Chinese financiers, developers, and contractors. So starting from the financiers, developers, and contractors, you know, a lot of Chinese firms are extremely good at what they do. You know, the fact that Chinese companies built roughly 60% of World Bank projects show and demonstrate that, you know, they're able to build projects at the highest level. So you've seen, we've seen, you know, internal Chinese policies on ESG or social engagement or environmental and social protection internally to be quite high. However, that hasn't translated directly to BRI projects being developed alongside those standards. And so there is a little bit of haphazard implementation where certain companies will do one thing and certain companies will do others, but there isn't a kind of overarching framework at the moment for them to do so. And that's where you're beginning to see the Chinese ministries um, begin to push out more plans for overseas infrastructure that really begins to align their standards across the board. Um, So you've seen a push from the NDRC, MOFCOM, 
you know, SIDCA to really formulate policies that align Chinese contractors and developers who are engaging in overseas infrastructure. Um, and so it's not just one particular actor, whether it be the developers or financiers or the ministries themselves, but I would say everyone within, you know, the kind of BRI atmosphere in China is really trying to elevate the standards overall. It's interesting, Blake, because you're picking up on a lot of the themes that we've been covering over the years, which is a much more nuanced view of the Belt and Road. Obviously, there are enormous problems with it, and there continue to be enormous problems with it. But all in all, on balance, there have been a lot of reforms and a lot of changes, and this thing has evolved. Whatever this thing is, again, it's hard to actually define. That said, ASPI, you and your colleagues oftentimes are called on to consult governments in the United States and Europe where the perceptions of the Belt and Road remain decidedly negative and downright hostile. And the discourse in places like New York, Washington, London, and Brussels is very different than the type of nuanced perspective that you're giving today. I'm curious, when you have conversations with U.S. and European stakeholders on the Belt and Road and you present the case that you've made to us in these few minutes— And that must come as a surprise to some of them who have, again, a decidedly negative outlook as to what this is and may not have evolved some of their thinking on the BRI as it's evolved over the past couple of years. Tell us a little bit about some of those interactions that you have with U.S. and European stakeholders and their perspectives on the BRI. Sure. And I I would say that, you know, there's the public facing voice, which, you know, requires or, you know, pushes them a little towards being a little negative on the Belt and Road and framing it, you know, very much in a geopolitical light. But ultimately, when you get down to the brass tacks and you get into the nitty gritty, it's hard to argue that there isn't more to the BRI than what's really being pushed out in the kind of think tank world or policy circles. And, you know, governments are aware. I mean, it's one of the key reasons why, you know, the Japanese have also elevated their infrastructure programs. The same with the Australians. It's not because China's doing it incorrectly. It's that they're the only game in town. And so I think that message is increasingly reaching governments in the United States and in Europe and, you know, in the Pacific and East Asia that, you know, without coming to the table with a viable alternative to the Belt and Road, you're simply not a player. And so while they still may, you know, still view the Belt and Road as negative, and there are still tons of problems with the BRI unquestionably, I think there's beginning to be a more of an awareness that there needs to be a viable alternative placed on the table that BRI partners can actually credibly believe and latch onto. And so while, you know, overall views are still negative, I think there is a growing recognition that the Belt and Road is continuing to become better and that, you know, alternatives need to be formulated and put up front. We've seen over the last two years or so several initiatives being announced that all more or less explicitly seem to be designed to to try and counter the BRI, um, including the Global Gateway um, and the, the um, Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment. So I was wondering what what you make of, of, of these developments and, and how credible are these these claims to you know to replacing the BRI in your in your view? I think it's a great and positive development that the United States, European countries, you know, others in the Pacific and East Asia are coming to the table. Um, I think it's exactly what's needed. You know, the developing world is in dire need of infrastructure and dire need of infrastructure financing. And China has been the only one to come and step up to the plate to provide that kind of support to the developing world. So 
I am actually very supportive of the, you know, initiatives such as PGII and the Build Back Better World and what Japan is doing and some of the bilateral initiatives that the European partners in Australia is doing. I do think it's credible. I think that it just is going to take a while for the details to come out. You know, I mean, the joke is in the United States is that whenever the U.S. government used to launch a policy, it would come with a 4,000-page FAQ document. Now, I haven't seen a 4,000-page FAQ document for the PGII, so I think we're just really, it's a matter of waiting for the details to be finalized and put out there. But I think it's a great step in the right direction that credible alternatives are being put on the table. And this isn't to say the Belt and Road won't still be a major factor, but if the creation of the PGII and other initiatives can help bolster and, you know, push the Belt and Road initiative to elevate its standards to ensure that projects are sustainable, I think it's a win-win for all. What gives you the confidence that the United States is actually going to do this? Because I haven't seen any evidence in the past 10 years that the United States, A, is willing to put big money on the table to build infrastructure in other parts of the world, B, that it has the competence to do it, and C, that it has the policy framework to execute this in a timely manner. This whole idea that it's going to take a long time, that doesn't work in the the developing world. Because the pressure and the urgency to do it now is critical. But also, we have an electoral system in the United States that doesn't allow these, uh, these initiatives to cross from one administration to the, to the next. Because you know as well as I do that if a MAGA administration comes in, they're not going to be that keen on building roads in Nigeria. Europe, by the way, I have more confidence because Italian and Portuguese construction companies have been very active. The Japanese, by the way... Um, are very active. In fact, the Japanese are building more infrastructure here in Southeast Asia than the Chinese are. They're more active and there's bigger projects. So the Japanese are in the game. I'm curious about your optimism that the United States is capable to do this. Yeah, I think one of the big distinguishing factors is the fact that the U.S. government is now actually talking to partners about putting together an alternative. You know, up until, you know, this administration, it was really kind of a bilateral push. You know, the U.S. would build infrastructure in your country, but there was no real conversation about how you can work with the Japanese, the Australians, with the Europeans to co-finance projects, to build projects together, um, and to figure out the different modalities to finance projects. And so I think that's one of the major differentiations between what we were seeing over the past several years to now is this real desire to coordinate with partners to put together a credible infrastructure plan. Now, I completely agree with you that, you know, it's certainly not an easy road for the U.S. to step up to the plate and, you know, a lot can go wrong. But I think the forward momentum in trying to put together at least a broad policy framework to address the BRI and to put something incredible on the table is a step in the right direction. Um, And also the fact that, you know, even if it isn't um, a U.S. government-led initiative, U.S. construction companies um, and developers are extremely active worldwide. And so if there's an opportunity for the U.S. private sector to also engage with partners and in their in their initiatives, I think it's it's also to the benefit of the United States. It doesn't have to be solely led by Washington, but the U.S. private sector can play a major role in supporting those initiatives. Okay, well, let's now move on to this digital toolkit that you and your colleague Daniel Russell developed, navigating the Belt and Road Initiative digital toolkit. Tell us what was the inspiration for it, and then we're going to get into the mechanics of what it does and who it's for. But give us a little bit of the backstory on this. 
Great, sure. Um, and so really the kind of genesis for this project began back in uh, 2018 and 2019 when we embarked on the navigating the Belt and Road Phase 1 project. And during that project, we traveled all throughout Southeast Asia uh, and you know, working with an advisor group and put together 12 recommendations on how to ensure the Belt and Road could be more sustainable, um, you know, in, ensure better outcomes for the local populations. But once we wrapped up that project, we really realized that it wasn't just enough to say this is, you know, this is what you should be doing, but actually how you should actually do it. And that prompted us to focus really on two major aspects. First, stakeholder engagement. And then the second is environmental and social impact uh, assessments, you know, two critical aspects of the due diligence process. And so our thought was that if you're able to improve these two critical aspects, even by 10%, it would greatly benefit the local population and help ensure that projects were ultimately going to lead to sustainable outcomes. And so that's how we initially embarked on it was it wasn't simply enough to tell people this is what should be done, but actually needing to showcase this is how you actually do it. And how did you go about, uh, you know, sh showcasing that? And so as part of the toolkit, um, we developed uh, what we call checklists for both stakeholder engagement and for environmental and social impact assessments. And so what we did was it wasn't enough to just say this is what the international community dictates in terms or mandates in terms of you know steps that you need to take, but also look at what China is doing not only domestically but also in terms of overseas projects. And so the way we laid it out is to provide so, an overarching view of what each step entails and then outline what China does domestically, what China does overseas in terms of infrastructure projects, and then also what international best practices are. And then steps that not only local stakeholders can take, you know, such as reaching out to local ministry or contacting the, the Chinese embassy in the country, but also what Chinese contractors, developers, and financiers should do and why it's in their interest to undertake these critical aspects of due diligence. So looking at the toolkit right now, you have a step-by-step -step timeline, something called a checklist, stakeholders, laws, policies, and guidelines, resources, and glossary. So it really is a Belt and Road 101. Who exactly is this intended for? Because people here in Southeast Asia who interact with the Chinese, they've been doing this for a long time. Do they need this kind of toolkit or is this designed for people, say, in the West who are just learning about it for the first time? Who's, who's the audience for this? Actually, the audience is both the Southeast Asians and the Chinese. And so just to take a step back, we're actually in the process of releasing the Mandarin, Indonesian, Bahasa, Khmer, and Lao versions or translations of the toolkit. But so our primary audience for this is both local Southeast Asian com impacted communities and local stakeholders. So your CSOs, your NGOs, your academics, your experts, but, and also the Chinese, um, your Chinese financiers, developers, and contractors. Um, and so the information that is contained in the toolkit relates to both. And that's why when we put together all of this information, we wanted to ensure that it wasn't simply focusing on what the international community mandates, but also what China does domestically, and that they could replicate overseas and should incorporate into overseas infrastructure projects. And so really the goal is to put in the hands the information into the hands of local communities so that they can help protect their own interests and also put that information into the hands of the Chinese in showcasing why they need to do these two critical aspects. And, one of, and did oh, you identify in your, I'm sorry, did you identify in your research that there were specific knowledge deficits 
among the Chinese contractors and local civil society organizations that needed to be addressed? It just seems surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that took us by surprise was the lack of information and knowledge about how you actually do these two critical aspects. And so what we found in terms of our research that was that while Chinese companies you know, do undertake some stakeholder engagement, it's haphazard, it's incomplete. You know, in certain cases, it's done away with overall, um, you know, in order to get the project up and running in a very quick amount of time. And for the local communities, they were completely unaware of these processes, that the Chinese should actually be following them, what's actually involved, how you actually communicate. And so for us, it became you know, quite evident that it was really needed to put this information out there because communities were simply unaware that they should be engaged throughout the life cycle of the project or that a grievance mechanism should be established to um, address their concerns and their queries. And so it was quite shocking to us that this information, while, you know, is well known within the infrastructure world, hasn't really translated to local knowledge and knowledge within um, NGOs and CSOs in the region. One of the big complicating factors in, in these projects is frequently the interaction between the Chinese contractor and local government agencies or, you know, sometimes state-owned enterprises or kind of special purpose vehicle companies that are set up in order to run the project like you know kind of in, in research that I've read some of the some of the the lapses in in for example relocating communities and so on happened in that in in the interaction between the contractor and and these kind of local corporate actors so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that that particular kind of field and how you guys kind of honed in on on some of those problems I mean, one of the major issues across the Belt and Road is information transparency and accessibility. Um, and when looking at the issues surrounding relocation or compensation, this is an issue where the lack of information is very problematic. Um, first of all, local communities are unaware about who should actually be in charge of this process. And the Chinese contractors are really not supposed to, in a lot of cases, actually undertake it. And so you know, when it comes to issues surrounding relocation, compensation, and redress, that's in the majority of cases actually should be handled by the local government and not by the Chinese contractors or developers. But at the end of the day, if those critical aspects are not done correctly or done haphazardly or done intransparently, you know, we saw cases of where there was no kind of structure for how compensation was going to be done. One person was paid $1,000 for a piece of land and another person was paid $100. But what we saw was that, you know, because they were local stakeholders were unaware of who should be in charge, who they should actually contact. At the end of the day, they were blaming the Chinese contractors and developers and financiers for issues surrounding redress and compensation when, in fact, those issues really laid with the local government. Um, and so by kind of outlining that within the toolkit that some of these responsibilities don't lay with the Chinese but actually with the local government really highlights the issues that confront China, the Chinese contractors is that they're going to be blamed for problems on the Belt and Road and related to projects that actually aren't in their control. And so that's one of the reasons why we really kind of bolstered out who should be in charge and how the process works is to kind of outline to local stakeholders what you should expect and who you should think about calling if, you're, um, if your interests are not being met. The toolkit is beautiful. The site is really well done. It's very clear, very easy to understand. 
How do you get the word out to people in rural Indonesia working on a Chinese-funded BRI project or in Kenya or anywhere else in the world that there's this toolkit? And then how do you get people to really engage with the content? Does this require some on-the-ground handholding, or do you just send out emails and say, hey, we've got this toolkit, check it out, and then let them figure it out for themselves? How does it work in terms of pursuing engagement for people to really interact with the content? I would say it's a little bit of all of the above. Um, certainly, you know, reaching, you know, conducting outreach to, you know, populations in Indonesia or, you know, Cambodia outside of Jakarta or Phnom Penh is certainly challenging. But we've worked with a wonderful network of NGO partners throughout Indonesia, throughout Southeast Asia as in large, um, who are helping us disseminate the toolkit to the communities that they help represent or interact with. Um, and so it's both, it's, you know, doing the social media, you know, by and large, and then also conducting dissemination events with local communities, with CSOs and NGOs um, throughout the region to really promote the toolkit and its usage. And so, um, and one of the things that we did was, um, in addition to the desktop version of the toolkit, we also created a, uh, a specific mobile version that is um, able to be used in low bandwidth areas. And so we tried to ensure that even if you were a farmer standing in the middle of Java, um, you would be able to use the toolkit on your mobile phone, um, even if you didn't have a strong internet connection. And so our goal has really been to you know, not only promote it widely within the kind of BRI circles, but also very much conduct targeted dissemination and promotion with the communities that we feel would most benefit from the toolkit's usage. How much engagement have you have you found with with recipient governments? Um, do you, you know kind of are, are bureaucrats kind of generally open to to engaging on on these issues, or, or are, do you also get stonewalled sometimes? I would say actually, you know, the response has been quite um, quite positive. You know, because what we did was not point fingers and you know point blame to who should be blamed for negative aspects of the project, but really outline what can be done to ensure that these projects are done better in the long term and how projects going forward should be structured and set up. And so, you know, from that aspect, you know, they've been quite ha quite positive with what we were been trying to do in terms of providing them support in figuring out what they can do, what they can advise local communities to do to ensure that projects are better. And so, you know, overall, we've been quite happy with the reception so far to the toolkit. Have you heard any feedback from the Chinese side on this? I mean, because again, they do sometimes get sensitive when Americans start commenting on these kinds of things. Sure. And we've actually had some good responses from Chinese interlocutors. Um, I think it's also a part of the kind of ongoing work that we've been doing on the Belt and Road. And, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, our goal isn't to just point blame and, you know, poo-poo the Belt and Road, but to kind of figure out ways in which the we can push or, you know, recommend that the Belt and Road be done differently in order to ensure that projects are done better. Um, so from their perspective, you know, I think it, it's a useful tool for them to, you know, push out to, you know, their financiers, the contractors and developers to just showcase, you know, if you were to do these things correctly, it would go a long way in terms of, you know, not only ensuring that projects are done better, but also ensuring that China isn't blamed for aspects of the Belt and Road that aren't under their control. Very quickly, you focused mostly on Southeast Asia. Is there a reason why you're only focusing on Southeast Asia? The Belt and Road is, in fact, global. Is it going to be customized and localized for other parts of the world in Africa or in Latin America or even in uh, the Middle East? I think part of our focus on Southeast Asia is... Um 
first is it's just a wonderful microcosm of the different development stages of different governance and also the fact that Southeast Asia has had a thousand years of dealing with the Chinese. And so if there's one region of the world that knows how to interact and engage with China, it's Southeast Asia. Additionally, I worked and lived in Singapore for a long time. And Danny's previous experience as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia in the Pacific, we both have deep experience of working in and with Southeast Asians. And so that's part of the reason why we focus on Southeast Asia. But we've also, in addition, have focused on Sri Lanka and on Pakistan. So while the majority of our work does focus on Southeast Asia, we certainly haven't not looked at other regions such as South Asia. Um, being the Asia Society, we primarily try to focus on issues in and around East, Southeast, and the Pacific, but certainly issues that are occurring in Africa are also across our radar as well. Um, and, you know, debt issues around debt relief, around, you know, project standards, around any kinds of issues, um, you know, pertaining to projects in Africa, we keep a, quite a close eye on because the issues that uh, countries in Africa are confronting are, you know, pretty much exactly the same that Southeast Asian countries are experiencing as well. And so there's lessons to be learned from both sides. A very broad kind of meta question to, to end off on. Um, where are we standing in, in terms of global consensus on ESG norms? Like, you know, like, I know that that earlier this year, for example, there's been fights between the Security and Exchange Commission, I think, um, but between the SEC and and certain kind of big American corporate investors around this particular issue about what counts as as real ESG implementation and what what doesn't. So I was wondering, you know, kind of like like where are we in terms of really global kind of ESG norms? I don't know if I could speak to the issues around global ESG norms, but certainly if you look at infrastructure and norms and standards and practices surrounding overseas infrastructure development, that's become a key topic for everyone involved. Um, you could see even you know through the U.S. announcements about infrastructure standards and working with the Chinese, uh, working with the Japanese and in Indians to promote universal infrastructure standards. There's wide recognition that. If a project, if any infrastructure project is going to be successful, it needs to be set up and aligned with the best practices. And so I think going forward, this is going to be an increasingly hot topic, especially as we see China increasingly try to bolster standards within the Belt and Road. And so I think the issue around ESG and infrastructure standards are only going to become more salient in the years ahead. The site is Navigating the Belt and Road Initiative Digital Toolkit. You can find it over at the Asia Society's website. We're going to put a link to it in the show notes and on our site so you can access everything that the, the team there did. It was produced by Blake Berger, who is the Associate Director at the Asia Society Policy Institute, and his colleague, Danny Russell, who is the Vice President for International Security and Diplomacy at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Congratulations again to both of you for the hard work that went into this. It, it's absolutely fascinating. And so if people want to find out more about the work that you guys are doing at the Asia Society, where can they go? Yes, they can... Uh come to the Asia Society Policy Institute website and all of our research and all the materials that we produce are there. Um, and so again, thank you, Eric and Copas, for having me and for the kind words about the project. And also, it's our pleasure, and we love having uh, the Asia Society Policy Institute on the show, and uh, the work you guys do, we're huge fans of. And you are also on Twitter, so if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, where can they find you? 
Yes, it's uh, Blake H. Berger. Um, that's my handle. And otherwise, you can find me on, uh, on, our, on our website. Fantastic. Blake Berger, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric and Kobus. Thank you again. Kobus, I have to admit that I was a little bit surprised listening to Blake because anything to do with China and the Belt and Road coming out of institutions in New York and Washington, one almost has this default instinct that it's going to be something hostile. It's going to be tracking Chinese malign influence on the Belt and Road. It's going to be tracking some kind of nefarious thing that the Chinese were doing. And so it was a a pleasant surprise, actually, the fact that Blake and the team at ASPI have produced something that is actually meant to help all sides in the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese side, the Asian stakeholder side, and then other observers and analysts like us who, who are watching all of this. Yeah, I think I think it's very worthwhile for you know for for them to acknowledge that for a lot of a lot of countries outside of outside of the, of the the kind of G seven, the Belt and Road Initiative represents a, a big, albeit complicated, opportunity. You know, rather than a massive threat. You know that that there's a lot that they can be getting out of the Belt and Road Initiative, but that 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 is is in itself a challenge you know kind of in order to in order to kind of to position oneself you know kind of to the optimum level but also to avoid all of these different kind of built-in pitfalls that come with sometimes with kind of working with china on these big initiatives so so i think it's really useful and it's also a very fantastic really a very useful repository of of policy documents and other kinds of other kinds of tools for researchers you know because because there's not enough of those in the world like for for anyone who's done actual research on the belt and road will know that it's very difficult to quantify anything you know kind of around the belt and road so so this has been very useful. And it has a glossary of all the key players, of all the key kind of terms. And again, to your point, it's a very useful tool for researchers, for journalists, especially because there's so much misunderstanding of the Belt and Road. And please, I know when I say that, it sounds like I'm trying to defend the Chinese, that it's this misunderstanding. No, no, no. It's that the Belt and Road is this thing, again, that none of us really have a grasp on because it's this Rorschach test that it can be anything you want it to be. And so in many ways, by actually benchmarking it the way they have, saying these are the beast, the pieces and the components that make up the Belt and Road, or at least what we see of it today, uh, that's super helpful. I think a nice complement to this interactive toolkit is also some of the interactive databases that the Boston University Global Development Policy Center houses as well. You start putting these all these databases together and you get a little bit of a snapshot of what's going on. The key thing to remember is that the Belt and Road in 2022 is not at all like the Belt and Road in 2016, 2017. And one of the things that I have to keep reminding myself is that a lot of the reputation of the Belt and Road was formed in those early years, the 14, 15, 16, 17, which was only two or three years after it was launched. So again, so much of these terrible deals, whether it was the SGR in Kenya or Habendota in Sri Lanka, were done in that first half of the Belt and Road in the first five years or six years. Since then, what we've seen is this contraction of the spending, a lot more emphasis on the feasibility, a lot more emphasis on the due diligence, which in some ways, Cobus, makes these types of databases and toolkits even more important because the barriers to entry, the bar to get funded in a Belt and Road project have gone up considerably. But yet sometimes the China literacy and the China knowledge and the sophistication of those in Global South countries has not increased as much. 
Yes, that that's definitely a challenge, and I think I think it is sometimes a little bit dismaying when one speaks to policymakers, and those are not only necessarily policymakers and diplomats in the global south or from the global south. They they also frequently include global north stakeholders that tend to have very kind of outdated ideas of what the, the global of what the, the Belt and Road is. We should also keep in mind that always. You know, the main, the most important thing to keep in mind about the Belt and Road is that it's a very squishy concept, and that you know one of the things that we've seen is that is that you know, and and you you for example you mentioned the 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 standard gauge railway and Hambantota as 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 examples of problematic Belt and Road projects. But I think, if I remember correctly, I think I think the the, the initial planning and, and discussions around, for example, the the Standard Gauge Railway actually predates the Belt and Road Initiative, the the announcement, and it was actually retroactively included as a, as a kind of a flagship Belt and Road project, and then disavowed again later when you know kind of when it became very very problematic. So there is no official list. There's no like official this is a like blue tick you know this is a belt and road of like certified project and i think that that kind of makes it a really kind of complicated thing because it kind of both includes everything and nothing like you know kind of if if you if you like if, if you like as a as a researcher being like oh okay i'm taking this particular project and then proving the belt and road is x or y from this this set of projects it's very easy to you know to have a, a kind of a counter commentator being like oh but these were never bri projects you know like because many projects are both bri projects and not bri projects at the same time this like schrodinger's project you know so so in that sense it's you know like the, the bri is is a thought leadership initiative and what falls under it or not fall or, or doesn't fall under it depends very much on the particular kind of document you're reading or the particular person you're listening to. For me, the most important part of the Belt and Road is the fact that it's at least some kind of organizing principle of, of Chinese foreign policy in the 21st century. Okay, so again, there's a commercial component, there's a trade component, there's a security component, space, health, digital, all these different aspects that you can hook things onto it. One of the challenges that we've talked about previously on our shows is the fact that the United States, Europe, Japan, in many respects, they don't have an organizing principle right now. Again, democracy, eh, it's kind of squishy too, but it's so vague and so ambiguous. It's not rooted in national interest the same way that the BRI is. And so as as vague and ambiguous as it is, at least it's some kind of organizing principle and vision. And I think the Chinese are, to me, fortunate that they came up with something like this. And this is what's missing a little bit in other major power foreign policies as well, is again, an organizing principle that everybody can kind of agree on. We talked about in one of our previous shows how everybody's agreed in, in the United States, at least in the policymaking world, and in increasingly in public opinion, that China's a problem. Nobody can agree about what to do about it. Nobody also can seem to agree about what the vision is for U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. role in the world. The Belt and Road does provide some shape to that, even though, as you've pointed out, it's highly, highly amorphous. Where do you see, based on what we've seen over the past two or three years, where do you see the BRI going from, from here? In the first place, I think I tend to think of the BRI as essentially a form of narrative setting. Um, you know, because one one of the narrative is incredibly useful when you're trying to kind of like draw a, a, a like if, if you have a like a, a a bunch of different random objects sitting together in a in a in a frame. 
like drawing, a, doing a circle around them groups them together, right? Kind of so. I guess that we're saying the same thing then in that sense. It's a, it's at least a vision of some kind. Yes, and 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 that kind of narrative. There's been a there's been kind of attempts at counter narrative setting coming out of the United States. You know, over the last while, I think the the democracies versus autocracy autocracies uh, framing that we're seeing from the from the Biden administration is one such kind of attempt to kind of set a narrative around a, a bunch of 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 random data points. Um, and you know, so so the BRI does that job, I think, quite effectively. And there, its vagueness is to its, you know, like helps it. It's not, it's not, it's it's a feature. It's not a bug. Um, and the so you know, kind of what I'm, I'd be looking out for, therefore, is is to see whether the narrative itself is changing or moving somewhere. In that sense, the um, the you know. I've been looking at the the Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative as 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 possible future iterations of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and and you know kind of that's a somewhat frustrating thing to do because there's very little information available about them and there's almost no discussion about what, how they differ from like either what they are or how they differ from the BRI or how they connect to the BRI. The one notable thing I think between them is the fact that they were launched together. Um, so the BRI has long been the BRI has has stayed away. I think for geopolitical reasons, has stayed away from any kind of discussion of, of, of or you know, kind of like only the vaguest discussions of security. Um, you know, there's there's not a there isn't a, a security Belt and Road the way that there is a space Belt and Road, for example, or like a green Belt and Road, health or health Silk Road as, as that we've seen. The Global Security Initiative might be, uh, you know, kind of like a reflection um, of of a kind of a shifting focus within China, where a, a, a kind of a tunnel vision focus on development has now been kind of merged with a kind of a uh, a similar kind of focus on global on, on security, where security, national security, is so important that in some cases um, national development it kind of gets the second position and security comes number comes first. So you know, kind of this is this is a lot of conjecture, but the the global security initiative might be a kind of a twinning of that on the international stage, where it's kind of pulling up security into the level of of like onto you know kind of a, onto the the same level as development as tools for Chinese international engagement. Um, but we have no idea what that means. Like we have no idea what you know kind of what that will look like. Um, the only the only clue we have at the moment is that the global security initiative is name checking indivisible security. You know, kind of which is which is I think you know kind of like elaborate code. I think for, for as as a, as a kind of a rejection of of groupings like the Quad, for example. You know, kind of like small like like kind of cherry picked groupings of states that are that are that that are supposed to be working together as as what the Chinese frequently call small groups. Um, you know, so so that might be one clue that that they're that they're trying to kind of devise some kind of unified vision of security, whatever that would be. But the thing is, you know, like here we're so far out on a limb in terms of in terms of you know, um, in terms of kind of making prognostications about what what this could mean, simply because the Chinese are again studiedly extremely vague about this stuff. Like they have very little, they give almost no specifics about any of this. So you know, it's one of those things where one has to keep kind of like seeing how how the leaves are moving and then trying to kind of like divine the direction of the wind from that. 
Okay, let's leave our BRI discussion there for now. Again, it's going to be a topic that we're going to pick up a couple more times between now and the end of next month, in part just to mark the ninth anniversary of the Belt and Road. Next year is the 10th anniversary. Uh, but there's just a lot of analysis that's been coming out lately, and there's great new toolkit from ASPI. A big thank you to Blake and the team at ASPI for joining us on the show. A couple other key items just to keep your eye on for this week as, as, as we go forward. Number one, uh, China's special envoy for the Horn of Africa, Xue Bing, is back in the region again making tours. Uh, check out our website. I did an analysis earlier on what not to expect from Xue Bing and why he's not going to be behaving like what we think a special envoy should behave. They're going about this in a very different way. And the expectations about what China's uh, peace and development intervention, that's what they're calling it, and mediation, not intervention, mediation, is going to look very different from that of the UN or the EU or the United States. So keep an eye on Xue Bing in the Horn of Africa. Also, Cobus, your folks down in South Africa, they exported their first pairs to China. Now that by itself is like, okay, What's interesting, though, is that if you track agricultural imports into China over the past six months, it's shooting up. I mean, it is going up. Every every week, there's another major announcement. Here in Vietnam, the big news was that for the first time ever, durian fruit now is being exported into China, all using what they call are these green lanes. And we heard those back in FOCAC last year, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Conference that was in Senegal. And that's when they announced these green lanes. They also have ASEAN green lanes. We tracked last week that the first coffee beans, raw coffee beans from Kenya arrived in Changsha. Of course, there's the avocados. And this seems to be the approach that Chinese are taking in terms of ramping up agricultural imports from the global south, especially ASEAN and Africa, in many ways to help try and offset some of the trade imbalances that are there. My view, Kobus, and I think you agree, is that importing more food from the global south and boosting employment in the agricultural sectors in places like Africa is always going to be a winning strategy. Yes, and, and this also stands in, in contrast to, to another interesting data point, which is that South Africa is taking Spain to the World Trade Organization for, you know, kind of for on complaints that they that they are working to block South African citrus imports in imports into Europe. So, you know, so 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 all of this kind of like green lighting of of, of agricultural trade from the global south in China sta- you know, kind of like stands in stark contrast to to how it's going in the rest of the world. And let me just tell you, Kobus, at my supermarket here in Saigon, we're now getting South African apples for the first time. These big bags Yay. of South African apples. And this is really exciting for us here to see more produce coming in from South Africa. And it's great for South Africa to be looking more towards ASEAN and less dependence on China and diversifying away. Let's remember, ASEAN is a market of 600 million people. It is huge. And it's it's a great market that I think is underappreciated. And so when you're starting to see around town, South African fruit starting to show up. Yay. So congratulations to South African farmers who've negotiated market entry deals into Vietnam for fresh fruit. So let's leave our conversation there. This is our second episode of the Global South podcast. We would love to hear what you think. Kobus and I are always accessible. You can reach me by email at ericeric at chinaafricaproject.com or Kobus, C-O-B-U-S at chinaafricaproject.com. Tell us what you think of the show. Tell us what kind of guests you want. What are some of the topics that you like? 
Everybody who emails me is always surprised that they get a very, very robust email in return. So it doesn't always happen very fast. I, I do fall behind in my emails, but you do get a very solid response. So uh, we would love to hear from you. And also we want to give a huge shout out, just enormous shout out to our Patreon supporters. Jeronima, our Francophone editor, is now managing that community and engaging with that community. And we're doing these monthly briefings with our top tier supporters. And we just, just cannot thank you enough for your support. You help keep the lights on. And so we hope that you will support us at, at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Lastly, if you want to get the wonderful work that our team is doing every day dropped into your inbox, go to China Africa, uh, or sorry, Cobus Old Habits Die Hard, ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe, and we'll deliver to you every single day for just a very small fee, less than a Starbucks run every month. A very, very small fee, seven bucks a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. You can sign up to get all the great work that the team is doing. So let's leave it there. For Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com.